So, Katie, what's the weather doing where you are? Today was sleet and snow. It was like slippery <laughs> on the porch. It was hard to sleep last night because the rain and sleet were so loud. Well, I hate to say this, but here in Arizona, it is a balmy 80 or so degrees, I think. It is perfect. But of course, I, I'm not just asking to pass the time because we're talking about climate change this week. I was waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah. I don't usually open just by asking what the weather is like, British as I am. <laughs> well, actually, I was thinking about, you know, one of the things maybe I really missed up in space was weather. Weather. But you get to see it. I guess you don't experience it, but you get to see it. I, I was up there in the winter and I, a lot of places like the US and North America so are actually, cold hold it, hold snowy. It. So when you say you were up there in the winter, um, which part of the world was it winter in? Uh, well, home, right? Home where okay, the heart so that, is. Okay, so that's always your your point of connection. I you know, I think it kind of works that way. What was cool was that, of course, roads are plowed and you could actually see more about what was what and where in the winter because you could see all the patterns of the roads and the fields. Oh, interesting. You've that got that contrast. Stuff. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. So enough about the weather. Enough about the weather. Uh, what's been going on this week in space? Well, Mark Vandehei is now the person who is the first American to spend 355 days in space. Ooh. So that's, that. I mean, that's, well, that's I was going to say that's a long time, but, you know, what does it mean to live in space, Andrew? I don't, well, I, I, I don't know why you're asking me. You're the one that's lived there. <laughs> well, but I mean, if you were up there for two days or one day or three, and what does it mean for Mark? But I think it's really pretty neat that we have all these different amounts of time. And I mean, that's a U.S. record, but there are U.S. people who've spent, you know, a couple hundred days, you know, and then added up all together adds up to, you know, five or 600. And Russian folks who have been, I think Sergei Krikalov, it's like 700 and so, something days so total. How, so how big a difference does it make, sort of say between 50 days and 100 days or 100 days and 200 days? We, um, we, we have a 100-day party, mm -hmm. which is about the three-month kind of point. And, and because it's sort of three months is where all the newness is worn off and some people right. look ahead and think, oh, this is a really long time. It wasn't really like that for me. I'm, I'm a little, I'm sort of in the moment and we, we got to delay coming home like a couple of weeks and I was overjoyed and I would have stayed <laughs> really longer. I think I've said this, like I try to say it every episode, right? In case it could be made to happen. If you had the chance to break the record, you would break the record. Well, the only thing I like about these records is that it makes people think, oh, wow, like real people living up there for a long time. Like it must be real if he spent that long up there. Right, right. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Today on Mission Interplanetary, we're asking, how can space tech help fight climate change? And I find this such an interesting question because I have friends and colleagues who say we should not be going into space because we got such massive problems on Earth. But of course, it's not as black and white as that, is it? Well, I was going to say that I think it's completely like, why wouldn't people think we would like fight climate change from space? Because it's this view where it doesn't matter. I mean, you can see such a broad picture and right. climate change isn't something that is you know unique to one country. And, and putting measurement systems up there, I, I, I love the fact that by figuring out how to see things differently, how to measure things differently, we can have a better idea 
of of what the consequences are and, and also then what the solutions are. And of course, that idea of seeing, I, this threads through so much of science over the last 200 plus years. It's only when we've been able to see something either in, sort of physically or metaphorically that we've understood how to approach the world we live in differently. So just that aspect of seeing from space seems to be incredibly important, however you interpret seeing. So we're going to get back to this with our, I was just going to say, we should get on to the episode. We, right? we, we should, well, we should, we should get to our obsessions. Um, so, Katie, what is your obsession this week? It's been a long week. I had a lot of deadlines and I've thought a lot about coffee Ugh. and how much I really love coffee. And and for my shuttle missions, I mean, but but loving coffee has a consequence, right? And and if you're going to go someplace <laughs> well, like where... like sleeplessness? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a good sleeper. I think I lead the okay. life of the sleep deprived, but... I remember um, like on my shuttle missions, those are just like a week or two long. And there's really just literally, first of all, the coffee was terrible. It wasn't very caffeinated. And you literally just would be too busy to drink enough coffee. If you're somebody who's used to having a few cups a day, you are going to have a headache. So I would decaffeinate prior really? to a flight. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I, I didn't want to deal with having a headache or I wanted to be the best I could be. You you didn't want to go with through withdrawal and cold turkey up on the exactly. International Space Station. Yeah. But Andrew, uh, let's talk about you. Obsessions this week. So I think we need to address the elephant in the room that none of our listeners will be able to see because they are not watching us. Um, but as you'll know, Katie, and as anybody that watches our back chat videos knows, um, the books behind me are in utter disarray. So my I have been meaning to talk to you <laughs> about that. So this is something that drives my daughter and my wife around the bend. I will not put my books in any sort of logical order on my shelves. So um, I don't know whether you can tell behind me, and I'm going to sort of say this for the, the listeners. Um, I've got a shelf that starts off, and I can just about see this with um, Richard Feynman's lectures. It then goes on to Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the original scripts. We've then got some science fiction there. I think somewhere in there we've got Little House on the Prairie as well. Okay. Um, but this this is this is one of my things. I hate order when it comes to bookshelves. I love the serendipity of looking for something and stumbling across something else that you just never expected. I'm pretty shocked about this, Andrew. I mean, because you know, things are you, you're like all set, and you think, and actually, you think in this fascinating way. I'm set way. in my ways. Yes. <laughs> Not set in your ways, but you seem like pretty ordered. But then there's like little clues, like I am looking at Andrew's bookshelf, and and there's the don't panic up on the top. Oh yes, of course. I think there's like the little things, the Rubik's cube. Can you really do those? Actually, I, yeah. Close your eyes. Yeah. Open your eyes. <gasps> you did it. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And I love the other Star Trek action figures. There's some drawings. Um, I, I like I like that the books the books look loved. They, they do. I, that's a great way of putting it. Yes. Books are definitely loved on this bookshelf. So that's that's my obsession. A lack of order when it comes to books. Well, let's go back to our big question. How can space tech help fight climate change? 
So when we look at this, it's not uncommon to find people who still argue that climate change is just a problem for the distant future. But the reality is that the impacts of climate change are with us now, and they're likely to get a lot worse. We see this, of course, in the increasing severity and frequency of wildfires, floods, droughts, and other catastrophic weather events. And all of this is happening much faster than many scientists expected. Just a couple of weeks ago, temperatures, I was shocked when I heard this on the radio in the morning, in the eastern Antarctic soared 50 to 90 degrees above normal. I mean, that is not a little bit. They're breaking records and shocking scientists around the world who thought that such an event was simply impossible. And given the urgency of the need to act with some speed here on Earth, there are obviously concerns that our efforts to explore space and set up human communities on other worlds are really just a veiled effort to escape climate change here on Earth. But I must confess, I talking to a lot of people, most people working in the space sector know that there is no planet B. In reality, there is no alternative to fighting climate change and no escape from the necessary work of preserving Earth's biosphere and the balance of our planet's incredibly complex and interconnected systems. So if space exploration is not simply an escape plan where we leave our current mess behind and start all over again, can the technologies it leads to be used to fight climate change and ward off the worst catastrophes? Well, to get these answers, we spoke with Deva Newman. Uh, Deva is candidly a friend, um, but she's also the Apollo Program Professor of Astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And she's the director of MIT's Media Lab right now. She was nominated by President Obama and served as NASA's Deputy Administrator from 2015 to 2017, the first woman engineer to serve in this role. She is awesome. Dave is also the head of Earth DNA, which is a nonprofit that uses satellite data and artificial intelligence to create consumer-level technologies, apps for cell phones and tablets, for instance, that communicate and educate about the Earth and its climate. It's a kind of dashboard for our planet featuring intuitive visualizations of global metrics so people can understand what's happening to the Earth and its system. I know one of the ways that Dave describes this is the Earth is speaking and we need to learn how to listen. Dave is a person with a deep expertise in aerospace, biomedical, and engineering. And she spent her career using all those skills as well as many others to bring together multidisciplinary teams to create solutions that support humans flourishing. And we can't think of a better person to talk with about space tech and climate change. So we talked to her. David Newman, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thank you, Katie and Andrew. I'm psyched to be with you too. Actually, we're psyched to be with you. So yeah, we can we can sort of double up on this. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. David, we, we created Mission Interplanetary based on the idea that humans are becoming an interplanetary species and that this is basically our greatest collective endeavor. But there's another collective endeavor that seems enormous and even more urgent, and that is fighting climate change. So if we imagine, you know, two circles, you know, where one circle is space exploration and the other one is labeled fighting climate change, I would love for you to talk about, like, what is in the area where the two circles overlap? Oh, thanks. It's a great question. And, you know, just being on your interplanetary podcast is going to have us uh, think big and we're becoming an interplanetary species 
getting people, you know, back to the moon and Mars. And so that, that just lifts people up. Right. So I think it's the awe, the inspiration. So now what's humanity's greatest challenge? I think a lot of, a lot of us think it is climate change, but you know, maybe rather than fighting it, it's like, okay, we have to educate people. We have to be knowledgeable about it. And then we have to move hearts and minds. You know, we have to, we'd have to change human behavior. And so I'm not the doom and gloom person. I know we have the data, petabytes of climate data every day coming down, but it's, well, what can we do with that? And I think there's so many lessons, so, so many lessons from ancient wisdoms, so many lessons from a lot of island community people living in harmony and think, okay, we need to pause, appreciate all life, our close relationships with one another and say, all right, we're better together. You know, we got to get on this and what can we all do in just... You know, something simple. Maybe everyone acts every day. Just uh, make a gesture, if you will. And if we scale that for billions of people, I remain really optimistic that we can turn the tide and we can all work together. At end of the day, it's um, personal health for all of us here. And pandemic. what about planetary health? And so when we kind of have that framing of planetary health for all of us, we're we're all astronauts, Katie. I'm, you're. <laughs> I'm agreeing. Yep. But I, I, I want to go back to something you said at the, the beginning, David, um, where you were inspired um, by space. What does it take to really inspire people to get excited about what the future could be like of the climate and planet Earth? And what and what part they could play in? Right. It. So here, here at the the Media Lab, we think about um, future worlds. And, and to start that off and really immersing people in there, you know, with the technologies and experiences. But I think why that's so important is simply we ask the question, what future do we want to live in? Right. You know, what world do we want to live in? And then it becomes empowering, you know, rather than, um, you know, kind of, again, the gloom and doom and what are we going to do and people feeling overwhelmed and helpless. It's like, no, we get to create these futures. You know, we get to see an alternate future and what can we do about it? And so it's kind of co-creating that that vision and that world that we seek to live in. So Deva, I, I would love to hear more about like the spirit of the Media Lab and, and how you think that the storytelling that comes from a place like Media Lab could actually move the needle in terms of something like climate change. Oh, it's, I think the magic of the Media Lab is that every day I'm, you know, a rocket scientist, I'm an aerospace engineer, but guess what? I'm sitting next to a musician. I'm sitting next to a computer scientist. I'm sitting, so we take artists, the engineers, the designers, half the time people are sitting there drawing on their sketch pad. So you kind of take that, those imagineers of the future, kind of give people license to fail, and then bring in a whole bunch of people that basically are trained across the disciplines. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a crazy conversation. <laughs> so there's no shortage of ideas, but I think that that really is some of the magic. You get those creative folks there, everyone has a voice, and we really do we challenge each other to think differently kind of about any problem. But we're really pretty focused. How can we make the most societal impact? And we invent technologies and have experiences. So kind of also back to climate. How are we going to change hearts and minds? Um, we have Todd Macover is coming up with an opera, you know, it's an opera of the future. So it's going to be based on the overstory, if you know that incredible book. So guess what? Of course, the trees are the act, you know, living, living plants and trees. Trees are the take center stage. So it's kind of just always maybe looking at things in, you know, an, an alternate way and celebrating that. And then really importantly, giving people that experience so they can feel like, wow, 
I had never thought that that was a possibility before. And Dave, I, I love this. I mean, this, this is exactly my world. So I get really excited about this idea of bringing together creative minds from different areas to just see the world in the future differently. Um, but I'm also aware that there are people out there that'll be listening and thinking climate change is way too serious for this frivolous stuff. How do you, do you ever come across this where people just say you're just engaging in frivolity and we should get into the really serious business of, say, uh, reducing carbon dioxide levels or reducing sort of global temperatures? And we don't want all this creative stuff. <laughs> no. OK, <laughs> wait a minute. No, I'm going back. I'm going back to opera. I'm going to stick up for my my peeps here. Because it's city symphonies. It's that um, you go into Detroit, the whole city is a symphony. Every single person is creating music. So see, that's the co-creation. It's not right. that you're the passive learner or listener or even enjoying the, the musical performance. Guess what? You are part of it. So you're creating it's like city, city symphonies. It's, it's awesome. So it's really uh, bringing everyone in. Everyone has a voice. And so that's why I'm optimistic about climate as well, is if we take everyone and say, and how do we empower them? They have good ideas. And what aren't we thinking about? I think it has to be fun, Andrew, to mm -hmm. your question. I think it has to be fun. So this actually gets me to Earth DNA, which is the nonprofit we've started. How can we be ambassadors for Spaceship Earth? You know, we're the astronauts, we're crew. How can we be ambassadors? So we actually have training, and it's training for, for the next generation of, of climate leaders. It's leadership, but it's negotiation. It's storytelling. So we develop yep. characters and Envision this. I have my 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 climate calculator in my my you know my hand, and I want to have an an oh hey Earth how are you doing today? And Earth is cute and funny. Oh, Deva, hmm, not very well. Running the temperature, you know. Sorry, I'm getting to be two degrees hot. I can't go to work today. You know, just what's the what's the storytelling? What's the engagement? How do we really have this conversation with with Earth, who's a living, breathing? you know, mothership and all of earth systems and, and make it fun and engaging and kind of have that storytelling. And, and I think trying to make it um, light in terms of a very, you know, a very serious topic, but how do we engage and how do we be joyful and play along the way? So, so Deva, um, you're, you're coming at this from a technical background, very technical person. How on earth did you get to the point where you start talking about narratives and story and creativity and opera. I mean, what happened? <laughs> what happened? I run around with all these really right. interesting people like you and Katie. And because the artists, the designers, the, the futurists, they're the storytellers. You know, I know it's never going to be about my technology. And I love my technology and I can easily fall in love with my technology. You know, that's where my technical expertise is. But I know that decisions, world leaders and decisions in, in DC, and just even local decisions when it comes to um, thinking about emissions, thinking about what people can do. How do we engage with one another? How do we come to decisions? So that's always going to be, again, at the table. And it's never just not going to be a technically an optimized technical solution. Right. That's going to be in the negotiations and the people coming together and with their hearts saying, this is what we want to do for our health, our wellness, for our community's health and wellness. So then how do you bring in the tech? And I, I, I love this. I am so with you with looking at, at people and understanding how people in society work and using that to, to inspire us to do better. But at the same time, there's still science and technology there. We can't just build a better future through stories alone. How do you 
bring the how do you bring everything together here? So through we use a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, now I can geek out with you. So we use <laughs> physics informed neural nets, but then we have all the climate modeling and sophisticated climate models of the Earth. Those those two groups usually don't talk to one another. So in the role of crossing the disciplines, we got to get everyone in the same room. So we have to you know have all of our data and petabytes of data. But it's just data at the end of the day. So how do we look at it? How do we make it useful to people? How do we make it impact their life? This kind of crossing from some of the expertise, the technical expertise, some of the artificial intelligence, machine learning, to the climate, climate scientists, climate modeling. And then guess what? Yeah, you bring in the artists and designers to try to say, okay, how does this make sense at the personal level? Because I really do believe in attacking it from the bottoms up. If we're going to make the world work for 100% of humanity, we have to include humanity. Um, can you can you give some maybe an example from Earth DNA of how you know taking data, making putting it into forms that people can yeah. see and feel and understand? I wish we could have the big screen up so that I could immerse you, you know, in complete 360. You just need data. to tell the story verbally. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but it really is holistic. So let's go back to space. Okay, we're in space in orbit. We're looking down on Earth we really do see the vital signs of Earth. You know, I see carbon dioxide being emitted five kilometers, 10 kilometers, 30 kilometers up. You know, we're today, did you check CO2? I think we're probably at uh, 417. We want to be below 400. So it's not just the numbers. That I can, you can immerse this and say, whoa, is that the world? Again, we want to live in? No. How can we reduce this? Oh, guess what? You know, I don't have a car. I, I, I got a, you know, car share. I can take a bike, even in freezing Boston. Just these little things. They're not inconveniences. I was like, oh, okay, what's one thing I can do today to help, you know, with to help earth? And I think that's kind of the attitude. We First, the education for submersing people. We have all of the vital signs of the, the earth. So I'm going to show them to people. It's very intuitive if we have these beautiful visual simulations. Another example is temperature. You know, show someone temperature for the last 150 years that we've been collecting global temperature and you just you just see it. So something you said really struck me in, in this context, talking about uh, monitoring the vital signs of Earth. Um, and I, it seems like when we're talking about oceans or nature, we can do all of that on Earth. We don't need to go into space. But something that, that you said around vital signs made me realize that it's almost like the analogy between a physician that is going inside your body but not seeing the whole body versus somebody that steps back and sees you as a whole. And I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about how actually being in space helps us get the big picture of Earth as well as that granularity of being in nature. So from space, from orbit, just from low Earth orbit, that's where our Earth-observing satellites are taking the data. And so we really do have an overview effect. Mm -hmm. Katie's been able to see it. She's seen Earth in its entirety. You know, I'd go into virtual reality and see it and look at that horizon. And you just realize that from that viewpoint, it is transformative. It is transformative. I don't think we all have to go into space to see it, but we can be transformed by experience, by visualizations. When you look down on Earth and you see all the interconnected and you see oceans, the land, the air, and then to near space. And that's mm -hmm. just the holistic Earth. That's, that's our mothership, that spaceship Earth. And so you see those interconnections and you say, ah, I see. You don't see nation states. You don't see this or that. What you see is that we all live you know, on this spaceship and we better get it right. Earth doesn't need us. Humanity, we really need Earth. 
Earth's right. going to be just just happy, you know. Is it so? Earth, Earth's going to Earth's going to be just fine, right? We're talking about how we treat it so that we can stick around. I was going to say that in the early earlier days of the space program, including the ones where I started, literally they're showing us pictures of okay, here is a lake in Africa that was twenty thousand square kilometers, and now it is two thousand square kilometers. You know, a series of photographs, and yet now there's so much more data that is available to people. But at the same time. You know, it's hard. Uh, it's been hard to go from people hearing those stories to people taking action, and it it's, seems like that's what you're trying to do with Earth DNA. It is true. It's such a it's such a good point. And so, my personal story then is: I grew up in Montana, and so in Glacier National Park is my favorite national park. So, you know, less than 100 years ago, we had 135 glaciers in Glacier National Park. But guess what? You know, there's less than 25 glaciers today, and in 10 years, it'll be less. So, when you see that in front of your eyes, the most magnificent place in nature that I almost know of, and you see those glaciers receding, it, that, that should wake us up. You know, for sure, it's, it's, it's an awakening for me. And then you say, okay, well, what can I do? I'm just one person, but what can I do? Something, you know, and I, I do believe that every person can do, can do something. And um, so I think that the inspiration and the awe and the appreciation of nature and when people see loss, then we do want to change, I believe. And we say, okay, we can, we can be better. It's, it's kind of trying to be our better selves. You know, what's the most important thing we can be thinking of and working? Like, let's, let's, let's do better. So one of the questions that comes up here is, what else can we be doing, especially from the perspective of, of technology and space? Um, so I want to ask you a question, which I know you're totally unprepared for. Um, but as, as the director of the MIT Media Lab, if you had infinite resources to create a group or a program that does not exist at the moment, um, but has the mission of creating the next generation of tech in space that is going to help us make the Earth a better place, what would you do? So I would definitely get teleportation down. So I would just beam, <laughs> I would just beam us right up there right away. See this beautiful, um, this beautiful image that we're painting. You know, this beautiful fragile Earth. Mm-hmm. And I, but the solutions are, of course, down here on Earth. So even though we have this magnificent view, this magnificent information, that holistic view from space, we have to come back down to Earth and the oceans. And so truly, I would let. I would try to give everyone those experiences, like literally right in their hand. Can they go underwater and enjoy the ecosystems and understand how important this is to life on Earth? Um, in the cities, cities are causing 70% of the CO2 emissions. So let's envision a really wonderful city where you live and work, have beautiful food, maybe grown on the roof, you know, maybe you have lots of transportation that you know, is, is all renewable. We have to create these wonderful, beautiful environments. Um, can't start from scratch, right? I know it's not the magical universe, but what can we do with what we already have? What do you think the limiting factor is here? Our science and technology or our imagination? Oh, it's definitely the lack of imagination, but lack of will. Right. And it's also, um, that's why the, the young generation, my students, that's why, right, they're so inspirational, right? Because they're, they're idealists. They got this, um, you know, shame on us because these young folks are so idealistic. They understand the certainty of it, but they're infinitely creative. So my job as an educator is to empower them because they are definitely thinking about, hey, what's the kind of 
world we want to live in together. And I, I find exactly the same here with our students. It's that that vision, that imagination, that creativity that, that puts some of us older instructors and professors to shame sometimes. So David, I was going to ask you, you know, we, I think we're all of on this conversation of the same heart that you know, if we could just get the information to people and get them to realize that they own it, it belongs to them, the earth belongs to to all of us, that we could make this change. But then there's there's this energy to get to that point. It seems like, and it seems like there's policy, there's money that's needed. I think of the wealth of kids in any of this, you know, in, in Chicago and Boston, all over the country. But how do we actually change what they think about on a, on a, on a Saturday? So it's, um, that's the tough work, the tough work ahead. And my answer is, I think it's probably going to take alliances so we can go back to earth DNA. So it's, it's the next generation we know. So education for them, information for them, empowerment for them. That's just one piece of it. How do we get um, the businesses on board, small, medium enterprises and large It When it makes economic sense, you know, then it makes sense. And so that's the point, I think, the, the realistic point we have to get to when it makes economic sense to, to be green, to think about it. And we're getting there. And But I think that that will be a tipping point. So when businesses are investing, and even small and medium ones, and that's why we envision uh, a platform and an open platform, we want to give away the data. We just want to empower everyone. So if someone does something right, especially a small business, guess what? We want to share that with the world. That's not a competitive advantage. You say, you want to share that with the world and can you ramp that up? So I think that that might be part of the issue. We're really trying to empower also business community because when it makes economic sense, then we can turn the tide. The consumers, right? The consumers are a huge point. We get to vote with our feet. We get to vote with our our, our wallets. And again, the next, you know, the younger, our students' generation, they're really being smart about this and they know, you know, they have purchasing power. And finally, government and policy, you know, all kinds of governments, you know, national governments, city governments. So again, I think we need to look at what are these alliances? It's going to be governments, it's going to be, you know, academia, it's going to be the business folks and the consumers. And so when we look at it that way, it's, I'm, I'm super optimistic because that's a lot of leverage if we right, can get those right. alliances together. And, and of course, I mean, coming full circle, I, you've got that cultural aspect as well, which brings us back to the opera that we started with, um, because you can't inspire people unless you tap into what really resonates with them emotionally as well as fiscally. Right. So let's try everything. You know, let's, right. there's, there's no silver bullet here, but maybe someone has an experience, a performance, an artistic, maybe someone sees just that one image. And they're moved forever. It's kind of like, I don't know what those, the aha moment is or the triggering, but let's just, let's throw everything we can at it. You know, let's right. throw everything we can at it to see how many people we can, you know, kind of click, have the aha. Oh, I see it. I want to, I want to do something. So David Newman, we should wrap this up, but thank you so much for giving us those aha moments and being such an inspiration here. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Deva. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Podcasts are a purely audio format. So you can't see the face that Andrew's making right now. You're missing so much. We can't show you pictures of space. But we can show you what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. Space.
Okay, Andrew, what do you think that was? Goodness me, Katie. So when it started, I thought, this is meditation music. This is the sort of thing you put on after you've surrounded yourself in candles, maybe put a bit of incense on, you've closed your eyes, you're comfortable, and you're just zoning out. But then it it moved up a notch. So it, you you got to that sort of like sort of prog jazz type bit, um, which I loved. I have absolutely no idea what it is. Um, but it's, I, you know, I'm guessing it's got to be some image from the galaxy solar system somewhere. Um, again, it's got that lovely sort of baseline, which indicates that there's probably something sort of fairly sort of solid there with little sort of bright sort of sparkly bits on it. I, I don't know. I'm guessing. I have no idea what it is. That was the sound of exoplanets being discovered. Seriously? And, yes. <laughs> so I was, and, and yeah, I, was, I, was, I was way out. I, well, in terms of the solar system, I had no idea that was exoplanets. I, I don't know if you heard the news that on March 21st, just a few days ago, the official count of known exoplanets surpassed 5,000. It's mean, incredible. It's an but astonishing actually, milestone. But, but this makes sense in terms of the sonification because you start with that sort of really cool sort of meditative vibe as there are just one or two, and then it sort of ramps up as we discover more and more and more. Well, there's stuff you need to know, okay? Yes. So so it's a it's a sonification of, of these discoveries, and it, it, but it starts at the very first exoplanet detected in 1992 all the way up to present day. One year is represented by two seconds. So each tone, so you're right, it was slow in the beginning because mm. you're beginning, you're learning. Each tone you hear in, indicates the detection of a new exoplanet. The pitch of the note identifies the planet's orbital period, the time it takes for that planet to orbit wow. its star. Right. And then planets with longer orbital periods are lower notes and those with shorter ones are higher notes. The volume and intensity of the note is determined by how many planets with similar orbital periods were discovered at the same time. Hmm. So this music really tells the story of humans discovering other worlds. And it comes to us from the great folks at System Sounds. And I really have to thank them so much because I really felt like I could literally see those people discovering those exoplanets as we listened. But I love that fact that you've got the human element to this. This is not just science. It's not just data. It captures the, the human soul of discovery here as well. It really does. Hey, let's listen to that again. our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garabi. 
Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen, and our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, please do, and email us at interplanetarypodcast at asu.edu. And of course, do recommend us to your friends. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. Follow us on Twitter at at ii underscore asu for updates. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.